0: Some of the engagements that I'm busy with at the moment, I'm so convinced that not a bullet, but just a good scorecard can bring value to a business that i would engage with the client and the payment of the contract will only come through if certain uplifts in revenue are achieved.
1: Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about consumer credit strategies around the world. In my first episode, I spoke to Raymond Anderson about the long history of risk assessment and the more recent history of credit risk scorecards. But scorecards, like everything else in life, must pay their own way. So today, I welcome friend of the show, 20-year veteran of scorecard building and chief risk officer for hire, Graham Whitley of Quidbro Consulting. We're talking about the sometimes messy process of turning scorecards into real and measurable business benefits and the role test and learn strategies play in this. You spend a lot of time building scorecards and building strategies, but you've also spent a lot of time thinking about how to turn those into business value. That's really what I want to talk about today. Let's start with a quick introduction of your background in credit risk analytics, what you've done and your experience, and then a little bit on the type of work that you're doing now.
0: I graduated in actual science and then I joined... Capital One Net Bank Alliance in South Africa. And with them, I moved to Nottingham in the UK where I worked for just under two years in the Capital One credit card business. And then I returned to South Africa, resumed my role, mainly focused on acquisition. And then I actually saw an opportunity and I consulted independently. And I haven't really looked back to be honest. Um, And that was about 16 years ago now. From acquisition, credit policy, scorecards, Profitability models, business case derivation, customer lifecycle management, line management, a lot of stuff in collections, and across all the the different retail products. There's a lot of data work because a lot of clients don't really have the experience or the in-depth knowledge of their data. So there's a lot of value in understanding their data and how that drives their business because that's how I I think you can add the most value what phases of the business does your scorecard sit in and how good are the things like your profitability models and your implementation strategies and those kinds of things. I'm, I learned spending a lot of my time evaluating how to generate the maximum amount of value for the business
1: from a scorecard. In my introduction, I, I sort of referred to you as a chief risk officer for hire because the difference between you and a pure scorecard consultant is is that aspect of it that although you've now, giving away our ages a bit, but you know, 20 years of experience in building and using scorecards, your focus is not on what is the best way to get the maths right to to maybe gain a little tiny bit more of genie. It's actually what is the better genie? Where is there a compromise that is needed to be made where we might want to take away a little bit of predictive power in exchange for it being cheaper to get the data or in exchange for uh, improving a ratio that the rest of the business might need it's quite funny So,
0: as you say like a chief risk officer role for for hire which is a role that i I do take but but a large part of it is companies not really understanding the need themselves so they know that a scorecard is important they don't really know what a scorecard does you've got to actually inform them i don't want to use the word educate but is right in this context you got to educate them that a scorecard is is just a tool so i'd spend more time getting people to understand how the scorecard is used and finding ways that the scorecard can add value and identify different customers rather than focusing on the scorecard itself it is also quite funny because scorecard building is seen as a science you've generally got a tool like SAS which helps you create a scorecard and it's often seen as a black box activity people give the information to a to an analyst they come back and they present a scorecard and the guys use the scorecard and they walk away and they of the opinion that no one inside the business can create a scorecard but the business also sits there and goes we can use the scorecard and we can create strategies around the scorecard because it seems easier and it's not a black box etc Creating a scorecard, once you understand it, is actually pretty straightforward. You don't need to know the the math behind the scorecards. SAS does it for you. So I don't want to get into building the scorecards here, but the scorecards isn't as as complicated as it it seems to be. But what I think does need the expertise is the implementation of the scorecard and, and the way that you can take a scorecard for what it is and the power that it gives you and really drive through maximizing the value within the business and often they they land up with strategies that are suboptimal because they haven't engaged enough in in terms of how to use the scorecard and, and the power that the scorecard will drive not only in just a singular decision of approve and decline but how you can use that scorecard to inform your strategies and how you can implement things like risk-based pricing off of it and how how you, your your risk scorecard can help you identify response rates. So you know, you've, you've got two different scorecards that operate right at the front of your business, which is around customer acquisition. The one would tell you what customers to target that are more likely to take up a, a lending product. And the other one will tell you who should you approve. And those scorecards generally work in opposite directions because the customer that is going to be more likely to respond to a credit offer is often going to be a customer that could be desperate for credit. And that that generally aligns with higher risk customers. So as an example, you could be in a situation where your response model says out of a population of 10,000 customers, your response model says target these 1,000 customers because they are more likely to respond. However, if they do respond, you might find out of those Those customers, you land up with 100 approved loans. So you've got to try and find a compromise between the two scorecards. So you actually, you almost create a matrix of the two scorecards. And then what you do is you target the the segment and the customers that maximizes
1: profit. Yeah, because that should be informing the approach that you go out with. The messaging that you're using to market would be very different. If you are knowingly targeting the population, knowing that many of them will be declined, you're going to have to have a different messaging that makes that clear to protect the brand. You don't want to go out sounding all confident and then decline a whole lot of people. Or likewise, yeah. you, you mentioned risk-based pricing. That's the kind of bridge between those two where you say, these are the people I want. We're going to approve all of these that we can get. But we know that this is a population where everybody wants them. So there's a lot of competition. I better give a discount or maybe I've got to give her a sign-on gift. Uh, this is a population yeah. that doesn't need credit. So the messaging, maybe it's something more luxury-based or more emphasizing the rewards your credit card offers. Maybe it's been done by marketing. Maybe it's been done by a team entirely divorced from the credit side, never mind the sort of analytics of the scorecard. But the thinking that the scorecard builder put in there is relevant and should be made available to these teams And I did some work with a client who had a big, uh, impressive, expensive scorecard up front. And the guys that we were working with, there was a little bit of grumbling under the the breath because once this big, expensive scorecard had gone in, they were still not really seeing a great uplift in the customers they were bringing on board. Because I was working at a credit bureau at the time, I could look at what's the credit score of the people that you did an inquiry on? and What's the credit score of the people you approved? And I could see that the degree of separation from applied to approved was amongst the highest in the industry. So you could actually say that scorecard was doing its job very well. But when we looked at those same data fields, it was very clear that the quality of the, through the door population, the quality who were applying at them was really, really low. So we're saying you've spent a lot of money on a scorecard, but actually a lot of your problem stems from the people you're attracting to apply. So Yes, the scorecard's good. You probably needed a new scorecard. It's probably worth the money you spent. However, you haven't addressed a big part of the problem, and that's your marketing. So perhaps it's your branding. Why are so many high-risk people applying to you? Is there something about your brand that's turning off lower-risk customers? And it's that big picture that's seen together, which would have been a lot more effective use of money than just building a new scorecard with a better genie. Uh, so I agree, agree with that 100%. And I think that
0: also comes back to the, the, the point that we made
1: earlier, which was
0: around the tools that, that support and surround your scorecard. If you can identify good customers that you want to target and bring on board, you, you're generally going to have to convince that customer, you're going to have to give them some kind of offer. And the danger there is, is I often find myself in a situation where you're having a a meeting and people say, okay, we've got to make it more attractive for these customers to take up a product. So let's offer them a 2 or 3% rebate on the interest rate. And everybody gets excited about that and off you go. But that could then make that product unprofitable for those customers, despite being low risk. And this is where the, the understanding of your performance and your profitability is actually vital. What can you do to attract that customer? If you pre-approve the customer, what you know, what what is the the interest rate that they that they should be on, or if you give an interest rate discount or a fee discount, all of those kinds of things become very very relevant. Likewise, in that example that we spoke through earlier around the thousand high risk customers that come aboard. On the face of it, as we described it earlier, it didn't sound like it was a good decision for the, for the bank. But if you could say to those customers, no, we'll give you a product, but bearing in mind your interest rate is going to be 5% higher than, than our standard offer. And that switches it around into a profitable nature. Then that's good for the bank. And that, that's where risk-based pricing truly comes in. You push in that decision and that profitability earlier in, in the life cycle of the account. Just the one thing on the scorecard that people often overlook is people think that is the, the, the remit of a scorecard is how you approve cluster. That's not always the case. It's a scorecard also helps you identify areas where activity shouldn't be conducted. So as an example, a, a collection scorecard is, is often overlooked and deprioritized. It's something someone does off the side of their desk. But a collection scorecard can add huge, huge value by identifying customers that don't need to be contacted, customers that are going to pay without intervention. So good customers. And then you 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 reduce your required capacity and you focus on the, the sweet spot, which is the, the, the customers that have a chance of paying pay if you contact them. And as I said, a collection scorecard is actually one of the easiest scorecards to be built. And I mean, you can probably build it in, in Excel. And I mean, I've seen impacts on collections where collections have jumped by 30 to 40% because you, you better focus in your activity on the customers who really,
1: really need it. Yeah, because you've got the you know the straight operational savings, but also then the ability to better work the customers where there's a, a chance of recovery.
0: But the, the strategy and getting the buy-in—it's not an easy sell within a business often.
1: Yeah, the collections topic, as well as the pricing one we we mentioned earlier, are both conceptually fairly easy, but practically hard to measure unless we are doing champion challenge or test and learn. So. I was going to pick this up later, but I think it's probably worth diving into now. If you were going to implement risk-based pricing, as you said, simply saying we'll give a 2% discount is very unlikely to be uh, the way to do it. We're going to want to make sure that the discount we're giving is essentially as little as possible, but still big enough to change a decision. And we're also going to think through things like what is the best format. When I was in the credit card space, you wouldn't really want to talk about interest rates reductions, because one, frankly, they're so high, you often don't want to tell a customer, hey, you're only paying 25%. They didn't realise they were paying 27 in the past. But two, practically speaking, a lot of people, particularly in the low-risk space, The interest rate on the credit card is not something they think about because they intend to fully pay their balances each month. So maybe the discount is a sign-on bonus. So we have to find what's the optimal discount, the optimal form of a discount. When collections does not phoning this person change their behavior because I've identified them as low risk, but if I let them run too long, do they become high risk? Or simply to prove it, to give confidence to a manager, you might say, okay, this is what the numbers show, but we're going to do it in a small way to control the risk. All of that... Can only really be done properly with champion challenger approaches. So, can you maybe talk a little bit about how you use a champion challenger approaches either to prove to an executive to a client who's maybe a little bit unsure whether they trust the numbers enough to uh, do something bold, or whether it is to measure and optimize a strategy?
0: I mean. Everything that I look to implement or any strategy that I look to roll out has to be done through a champion challenger approach because there's just so many moving elements at any point in time that you have to understand the impact that your strategies is having. Having said that, there, there are challenges that come up. It's difficult to have two scorecards implemented at the same time from a decisioning point of view. And the, the other one, it, it lands up being a, a, a funny situation because at some points in time, you you spend time convincing the executives that the new strategy is the best strategy. And then you finish up the conversation by saying, but we're only going to put 70% of the accounts through the new strategy and 30% are going to go through the old strategy, which we believe is substandard. And no, then no, no. growing businesses with well, the businesses that are new to you, scorecards and things like that they're not a massive fan of that. They, they want to go big and they want to drive the value as quick as possible. It's definitely a discipline that we have to get into and we have to force ourselves to stick with because, you know, you, you have to operate in the realms of the known, and not in the realms of, well, we think this happened. And, and that's why you, you absolutely have to have the champion-challenger strategy, as difficult as it may be, and even sometimes do things manually. Make sure that test and learn becomes a staple and a integrated part of the business.
1: I get that. Like I worked for a big established multinational bank who had champion-challenger in their credit card issuing systems, but the two parts, so 80% went down strategy A, went down strategy B, as they had done for the last two years. That's not champion challenger. You can't just do two strategies for two years. And yes, we could compare one or two things to it, but it's test and learn. Champion challenger, it's about always updating. The new strategy might be great, it might be best, but slowly over time, people change their behavior because they're getting declined or because they're getting approved or because their limits are being increased. If we're not continuously measuring that and getting ready to change and adapt to what's happening in the current day, we're always going to find ourselves slowly moving off track. Even if you're not big enough or sophisticated enough to implement you know, multiple marketing campaigns at once and monitor for the exact perfect price or the best way to word an offer in a letter, even if you've just got that simple champion challenge, okay, here's the system we're replacing, the score, the strategy we're replacing versus the new one and we're going to check in after a month, two months, three months, and we're going to prove that the new one works, then 100% of people in theory could go to the new one. But don't we have a better idea now? Maybe we want to try something else. Let's let's put in a new challenger and to create that atmosphere or that culture of continuous learning, of not sitting on the status quo. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. You can't do that with full confidence unless you're real-life testing because everything we measure, we change. So you're changing people's behaviors. And unless you're accounting for that, they're just going to be having to get the consultants back in in a a year to to adapt the strategy.
0: Test and learn isn't something that you do once to tick a box. Test and learn is a culture of evolution and improvement and continual development to come out and deliver the best possible, and potential strategy. And it's something that you've got to do all the time and you've got to be continually asking the question and pushing and trying to find those improvements. What, what I do find really helps is when you're putting in a new st- strategy based on a scorecard or a new scorecard is make sure that the a success criteria are well documented. So you're looking for an improvement in a key metric, let's say customers who've missed three payments after six months. Let's say that's a critical metric and your conditions of success are a 10% improvement in that metric. That's an agreed outcome. With, uh, if that condition is met, actions are taken. Because I often find, and especially with the smaller companies, data is, is sporadic, data is, is spiky. All of those kinds of challenges exist. But if you sit up front and you say, right, when we see this, then this is the action that we're going to take. That's very powerful. And likewise, the conditions of failure, because everybody wants the new strategy to be a success. But things don't always work out as we planned.
1: Yeah, I think what's um, interesting there as well is that test and learn does create its own data. So you might be operating in a world where data is hard to acquire right at the moment. But by doing test and learn, you can create it quickly if you've thought through what you're actually testing and what those success and failure criteria are. In one of the other episodes, I'm talking to a fintech in the Philippines, and one of the things they're working with is a client base that doesn't have a lot of traditional credit data. And so they do lots of champion challenge, lots of test and learn campaigns very quickly. So they'll take a small risk on a customer, and then try and learn as much as they can about that customer early on because they, they see that as a way to create the data they need where it doesn't exist.
0: The low and grow is a strategy that works well when there's, there's little or no, no data and you're effectively pushing back your scorecards from a upfront decision to a three month or a six month decision.
1: I've heard the term low and grow used where, yeah, we give everybody a small credit limit. And then at six months, we we see if they've been paying everything back and we increase their limit. But if it's done right, you're not so interested in learning a lot more about the specific client. You're trying to find ways that that client can teach you about everybody. So you want a thought out campaign so that you're improving your scorecards over time. It's building those feedback loops. So, which customers, which type of customers, made it through to six months and look good and got their credit limit increase? What might I know about them now? Could I rebuild my scorecard if I did it today? Because particularly in this example, I'm referring to in the Philippines, they're bringing on a lot of new data fields. You know, the smart all the sort of smartphone data fields that exist today that haven't got a long history of being modeled in. They can keep all this data, thousands and thousands of fields. And as they get more customers on board, as they get more performance data, they're continuously thinking through have we learned anything that's enough to build the scorecard, to improve the scorecard? And they will know that so much faster because they're checking all the time than if they just waited for a two-year development cycle or tracked genie until Genie got too low and they they did a, an audit pushed new scorecard build. So yeah, Champion Challenger, we talk about it and it's it's something that most people know, but this is that culture, as you said, a culture of learning. When you're building it, what are we testing? What are we looking for? What would success mean? What would failure mean? What time frame would we need to look at those? So depending what you're looking at, response rates, you know, those happen from within a day or two. Uh, defaults you know, take several months. It does take time. It's naturally, it does sound inefficient. Uh, if someone's seen it through, as you say, they might be very keen just to get everybody on the new scorecard or on the new strategy. But if we can build that culture, it allows us to just learn more accurately. And I think you've
0: touched on two really important aspects there. The one is just the time to learn is not something to be understated or underestimated, especially on, on the, the risk performance side of things. It, this does take time to get significant learnings and to make proper decisions. And I think the, the other thing when you're talking about the low and grow type of strategy is good decisions need data. And throughout the entire process of ev- everything that we do is having good data and that that flows through from making sure that the data is accurate on the systems to having accessible systems, but also to making sure that you capture as much data as you can, whenever you can. So my default position is always to try and just give me as much data as is potentially possible to gather and then let me sort it out later on and figure out what's important and what's not. So what you're talking about with the thousands of columns of data, I mean, that's brilliant. A lot of companies that you engage with don't fully understand the value of capturing data up front. I, I can't tell you what data is going to be important. I'm only going to know the answer to that a year from now. And then, then we can trim down the application form or the data gathering exercise. That's how you build a good scorecard. There is a lot of pushback against that. Everything now is about making things quicker and better and faster. But the worst situation that you could be in is having implemented a low and grow strategy And a year down the line, you're sitting there going, actually, I don't have enough information or I don't have the right information that helps me identify who's a good customer or not. And we need another year of information and performance and let's do it right this time. So I'd rather be in a situation of maybe losing a couple of customers through the application process than delaying our development by a year, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does, and it's also why I'm quite interested in the sort of new alternative data fields in developing markets, in particular. In big developed markets, there's normally a credit bureau score you can refer to, and you can get the data you need on a customer quite easily. In the developing world, you'll often have, yeah, none of this legacy of data built up. There's often not really a strong credit bureau, or uh, where there is a bureau, only a very small portion of the population is represented in there. So. Yeah, In the Philippines, uh, where, where that example was from, uh, but the same is true in places like Kenya. There's a strong credit bureau, sometimes multiple credit bureaus, but they're talking about a very small, high-income portion of the population. But when we look at now what smartphones in particular can bring us, is these smartphones are storing all this data anyway. Things like... Your home address can be inferred from the data, um, the activities that's happening on the phone, how many relationships exist, payment status, and things. If we can start pulling these in from other sources that are storing it, we can sometimes work around that fact that the lender might not have sort of institutional capacity to build and manage databases. But maybe somebody else has got it, and we're entering a world where you don't have to have a handwritten application form that's seven pages long. The smartphone can maybe pull that through with a few bits of consent given.
0: That's the key part is just around the, the consent. So with my clients in Kenya, I mean, there's a huge amount of focus in terms of how social data and, and open data can help slow risk. It does have huge potential, but then you do have the regulatory concerns and the privacy concerns that come along with that.
1: The risk that it gets turned off by the gatherer at some point is not controlled by you. So, yeah, it's got value in some builds, but there's some complications to get through. I know we've sort of gone off a bit on the, the, the champion, challenger, test and learn, but if we circle back to when you're linking a strategy to revenue, what is your approach to kind of make sure that the work you're doing is driving genuine? measurable and sustainable business results and not just giving a scorecard with a very high GD. As an example,
0: um, I was actually assisting one of my clients in Africa and my engagement at that time had nothing to do with the upfront credit policy. But I did in conversations with the, the CEO understand that that invested quite a bit into developing a scorecard, an application-stage scorecard, but weren't fully understanding the benefits that the scorecard could bring to them. And there was a lot of pushback. They were second-guessing themselves and doing a lot of manual reviews of the scorecard's decisions. This was problematic because A, they they had a lot of capacity that was being used in making subjective decisions. It was slowing down the application time, all of these negative things. And at the same time, from what I could see, my analysis was that they were declining potentially good accounts. So I I spoke to them and I engaged with them and I said, listen, I can help you out here. I'm willing to put myself in a situation where the payment of the contract will only come through if certain uplifts in revenue are achieved. So the first thing was to actually understand the account performance and link that through to a profitability model that people understood, and then to transition that into the scorecard and link it through and say, well, now that now we've got this scorecard and these are the profits for different scores within the scorecard. So if we were in a in a world where the manual vetting department was offline for a couple of days and we moved on to this new scorecard, this is the the value, the incremental value that would be generated. And we worked it out to be about 15% to the bottom line of the business from moving to an automated scorecard without manual vetting. So it was a huge thing for the business. And there was that itself generated a lot of excitement. You don't often come across a, a time and a place when you can add 15% to the bottom line of a business through you know, one single implementation of a scorecard or strategy. A number of engagements... After that, have taken on a view of saying, I'm so confident that we can create value, that payment of the, the engagement is conditional on value
1: being achieved. I like that idea, of, as you said, of upfront, we can agree and we, that we're going to look at the same things and, and it gives everyone a reason to track the success. You mentioned a profitability model. In my mind, that can range a few lines in Excel to something as complicated as a scorecard. Can you just talk a little bit about what a profitability model was in this context and maybe some broader thoughts on on modeling profitability? I think for me,
0: it's got to be understood. So it can't be too complex. It's got to be accurate. And there there has to be a way for the business to tie back or understand the performance. You can't just have a a low-level profitability model in isolation that no one's got any reference to. So, I build an account level profitability model to go through and look at the performance of one average account that represents the portfolio. And then you multiply up to the portfolio size at a tranche level. And then that should reflect the portfolio as it is now. And if you can do that, you can build a lot of buy into the fact that the profitability model itself is accurate at a loan level. And then you can start modeling out different scenarios. What happens if the interest rate is? higher. What happens if risk is 15% lower? And you can do this on an average account level to create a very specific NPV on which specific decisions can be made. So if you can sit there and you can say a bureau score of 600 translates to a risk experience of X over time, 5% of the accounts default in months, six. So that really gives you the ability to make very, very powerful decisions within the business. And lots of gaming scenarios, like how do we model out grow and grow? How do we model out changes in interest rate? How do we model out bringing on board a fee? How do we model out changes in risk experience? What happens if we believe that in a year from now, we're going to have a better collections department and better collection strategies? How's that going to impact the present value? All of those things become relevant. And it doesn't have to be this massively complex thing. It's just gotta be people have to be able to look at it and understand it and it's got to be flexible. Flexible and accurate. And then then it's it's probably the most powerful tool that you've got within the business. Profitability model and the scorecard are in my mind the uh, the two most important tools within a business.
1: Yeah, I think I could agree with that because I think that a lot of the value of the profitability model it's not an easy word to say. The profit profitability model is from its ability to drive the conversations and to get people thinking about how does this connect to that? Where's the money coming from? Where are we are losing money? The scorecard is very much this is the risk situation. This is how many people are going to meet the bad definition or the, the target variable. And then what are we going to do about that? How do we use that? What are the next steps? What's all this complicated business stuff that sits on top of it? What are interest rates, pricing, approval rates? What are your operational costs? All of that can be filtered in and it can build up over time. I always like them as an exercise to get everybody to see that one picture. And I've built some models for clients that are in an Excel sheet with a few lookups and, and matrices and things built in. And in those cases, it was to, to drive just that conversation. I remember doing a, a client engagement in Sweden where I built the model on the train ride over in a couple of hours. And it wasn't, OK, this is your actual profitability yet, but for that ability to sit down and say, this is what it could mean. Yeah, correct. Thank you, Graham. As always, it's been a pleasure catching up. I look forward to having you back on the show another day. Georg Steiger is the co-founder and CEO of First Digital Finance, a fintech in the Philippines that's using advanced AI modelling and buy-now-pay-later product offerings to increase access to finance in that country. I'll be speaking to him next Thursday about how to lend to thin-file or new-to-credit customers in developing markets. You can join us on Spotify, the Apple Podcast Player, or wherever you're listening to this one.
0: To be honest with you, I'm not too stressed about getting the consultants back in because that's what keeps me employed, but your your, your fundamental point is correct.